You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with the show, a very exciting announcement. In fact, a thank you, a huge thank you to both Steve in Milwaukee and James in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Both of them donated to the podcast this week. We are so appreciative of those donations. Guys, we know you love the show, and we certainly love putting it on for you, but this stuff isn't 100% free. There are costs associated with keeping our website up and running and just generally keeping the podcast going each week. So we're so thankful and humbled by any donation that we get from you guys. Again, Steve in Milwaukee, James in La Crosse, Wisconsin, thank you guys so much for donating to the show. If you'd like to donate to the show, again, so appreciative, go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the donate button at the top right of the homepage. All the donations go into paying for the cost of putting out a new episode each week and making sure we're keeping up the quality of this show. Also, our Amazon promotion that we talk about each week, you know, you go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. We get a percentage of what you guys spend and we donate that back to some of the charities featured here on the podcast. We were able to make another donation this week. This one to the Special Forces Foundation, just an incredible foundation. If you guys would like to learn more about them, go to their website, specialforcesfoundation.org. This is an amazing charity that is taking care of some of America's best soldiers. So please, again, check out specialforcesfoundation.org and certainly keep the donations coming to us. Continue to grow that social media following. We are so close to reaching 1,000 followers on Instagram, so make sure you guys follow us there on Twitter as well. Don't forget about our YouTube channel. This is huge. We are almost at 2,000 subscribers there. Love growing this audience. That link is youtube.com slash C as in Charlie slash Hazard Ground Podcast. Again, youtube.com slash C slash Hazard Ground Podcast. You can get all of our episodes on YouTube as well. And as always, we hope and continue that everybody out there is staying safe, staying healthy. We know these are crazy, tumultuous times in America right now. As veterans and service members, we ask that you guys keep setting the example, keep leading the way, and making sure that we are doing everything to uphold those values that make the military, the American military, the best on the planet. Now, with all that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. And joining us this week on the podcast is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who had 22 years of combined service. He had four deployments to Iraq, including one during Desert Storm, the other three after 9-11. He went to Harvard as well as graduating from West Point. He now is the founder and CEO of ScoutComs, an organization that works with businesses and helps out veterans. He is Fred Wellman joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Fred, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. That's yeah, great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Uh, just an incredible uh, journey for you. I mean, you know, it's one of those tales where it sort of hits on every single note that we try to touch on in the podcast. Not only is it combat, but it is personal loss and tragedy, military loss, you know, the, the return back to combat again. I mean, it's just, it's a whole spectrum of emotions for you. Yeah, I've had a, it's been a wild ride. It's a, it's sometimes I'll sit down with somebody. Actually, I was drinking some bourbon Sunday night at a friend's house and, and they got me going and they're like, Jesus, man. Like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride, but uh, you know, I'm still here, still above ground. I guess that's what matters. Right? And oh, by the way, West Point and Harvard is no slouch on your resume to say the least. I mean, it's not many. Well, yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. It's kind of funny. I mean, and my joke with West Point, I graduated in the top two thirds of my class, you know, so I was really an overachiever, <laughs> you know, 600, 900, but I just, I did better later is, is 
when uh, it was actually a funny story, General Petraeus's idea for me to even look at going to the Kennedy School. And we were in Iraq on my second tour, and, and I was like, you know, I barely graduated West Point, right? He's like, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, and I managed to get through it. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting is uh, what's unique about you is you're actually one of the few people that I've even come across, let alone interviewed for the podcast, that went to Desert Storm and to the war on terror, it seems there's this weird sort of timing that anybody who was in Desert Storm got out shortly thereafter and was not still in in a post 9-11 era. You actually bridged that gap, which is pretty unique. Again, the way yeah. the army sort of went, uh, a lot of guys who, who were there for, uh, you know, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, for whatever reason, either just got out their time, got up for 20 years and a whole new influx because. As we remember, and we haven't even gotten to your story, but, you know, historically, after the Gulf War, Clinton takes office and he downsized the military incredibly to like under 200,000 of the active but force. It's, it's easy to remember. It's easy to forget. We actually downsized him before Desert Storm. I, I remember it was at the end of the Cold War. We had a huge gap. They offered my West Point class early outs. Really? Yeah. So we had a number of guys already shedding when Desert Shield kicked in. One of my best friends from the military academy was actually out-processed when the 82nd Airborne got mobilized and he, he wow. begged and he went right to the division commander said, dude, I got to go. And they pulled, up, they pulled him back in. And he went, he went off to Desert Storm with us. So, so we were in the process of downsizing. And then we came back and it got smaller after the Cold War. So yeah, a lot of guys got out. Um, I think my West Point class is one of the smallest ones as far as like the active duty as their careers progressed. I think we were down to like one third of the guys still in by the time Iraq hit. So yeah, it's, it is a little weird. But I was a young platoon leader for Desert Storm. And I was able to be a, you know, I was a field grade for, uh, for Iraq. All right, well, let's get into your story. Start back in how and why you got to the academy. <laughs> First, there was a big bang. No, so <laughs> I, uh, I'm the son of a Marine, and uh, and so my dad was uh, was was obsessed with the Marine Corps. He, he, he served in War Two, and and uh, you know there it goes. They never let it go. <laughs> and as I went through high school, I was very interested in the military. I wanted to be a pilot, actually. And as time came to pick a school, I had where everybody went was the University of Missouri. I grew up in St. Louis, outside of St. Louis, Missouri. And I remember actually going to look at the options. My dad dragged me over to meet the Air Force Academy guys, and and they were like jerks, you know, Air Force. <laughs> and uh, and the West Point guys were over in the corner, like, hey. And I went over and talked to them, and you, you, know, you could major whatever you wanted to. You go in the Army. Army has aircraft. Army has boats. You know who do right. And uh, I applied to the military academy and got in, of all things, and uh, from Missouri as one of the first guys in my in my hometown to go in a long time. And it was great, you know. Again, it was a military tradition. Um, I often joke I actually got rejected from Marine Corps ROTC though. So it's wow. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really made my my dad actually wrote a letter to the commandant because <laughs> I got into West Point, but not the not the Marine Corps ROTC. But that's the, it's a great story when I talk to Marine audiences. But yeah, so got in the military academy in 1983, graduated in 1987 as a as an A. I got lucky. I I studied hard my last my last year of eligibility and, and managed to jump in to get an aviation slot. Yeah, because those aren't uh, easy to come by. I mean, everybody's lusting after them because being a pilot is. is cool. Yeah, well, the thing is, the smart guys study so much their eyes go bad, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so you get you get to slip a couple of dumb guys in there. <laughs> you know, my eyes were closed twelve hours a day, generally speaking. So I didn't uh, <laughs> I had really good vision when the smart guys didn't. And yeah, I slid into the aviation slot. Actually, literally the last slot in my class. I was the I used to joke I was the dumbest West Pointer at flight school. Really? Well, I, I kind of uh, 
I was in a platoon on active duty with a really dumb West Point kid, and it was always oh, my, we exist. Yeah, yeah. I was always my reminder of that they're held in such high regard, and I was like, you know, somebody's getting yeah. to see at West Point and barely getting by. You know, and it's just the bell curve of life. <laughs> Education doesn't mean intelligence sometimes. Right, sure. Um, now, you were, as you mentioned, you got in in 83, so we're in a relative, you know, post-Vietnam era. We're in a time of yep. peace. Did you think that you were going to do your you know five-year service commitment and be done with it or did you have plans at this point did you think you were going to be a career career kind of guy i was always that guy that not quite fit in i remember when i was at the first year of the military academy i, I used to joke that i, I got through west point by planning on quitting and then never getting around to it right <laughs> it's like well next semester i'm out right and I, I remember i had a great uh senior cadet come to me when i was a freshman and plead we call it and and he says look man you know Actually, it was one of my majors. He said, look, you don't fit in here. You know, <laughs> I really didn't. And he goes, but that's the great thing about the Army. The Army is big enough that you can have a career. You could even make lieutenant colonel someday. I was like, ha, ah. <laughs> um, and never really fit in. That's the joy. You might not be a general. You know, you may not be in May 06, but the Army is a big enough and diverse enough organization, unlike some of the other services, where you can be a certain bit of an outsider and have a successful career. So, And that really was, if you look at my career, I think you've seen it, it was it is marked by a lot of weird stuff, right? So – um, and I was that guy. So I, I held that to, to – so I made it to the military academy. I guess I wasn't a stellar cadet. I was truly 600 out of 900. But, but I was able to find my way into aviation and find a career where um, I was able to you know, make it 20 years. But my plan was to do the five. Matter of fact, I remember having a talk with my battalion commander. I was in the 24th Infantry Division, the heavy division, right, massive mechanized division, which was somehow assigned to the 18th Airborne Corps. Nobody understood it. <laughs> and uh, – and I remember scoffing at the idea we, I was going to get out. And, I, and he goes, you know, we're never going to go to war. The mechanized division is never going to go. It's all about – remember that was when they were building the light divisions, yeah. light infantry, 7th ID, you know, 25th ID was a light division. That was the big thing. We, we're going to fight in the jungles of Panama in the drug war. And, you know, drone, you know, Columbia, yeah, that was the big thing we were thinking of in the early – everybody forgets early, late 80s and 90s. And then I swear to God, like two months later, poof, I'm, I'm boarding an airplane and a boat to head to – Saudi Arabia for a, me- a massive mechanized fight, the largest since World War II. So. so, you know, you talk about not fitting in. I, I say it all the time that the Army has a propensity of put you, putting you where you're supposed to be, right? Whether you want to be right. there or not, it, it's, it's uncanny how that happens. Yeah. Um, as you're starting to go through the early part of your career, and like you said, you were thinking that there was never going to be a war, there's never going to be a combat. Um, did you feel like that you were in the right career or, I mean, did you feel like, you know, just because you were an outsider that this wasn't something that you could, you could see yourself doing for an extended period of time? Um, it met, it was mixed. I mean, I, I, I often tell this, I often say that I, I, I was very fortunate that at about one out of three bosses loved me. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was fortunate to have some great mentors at key points in my career progression. You, you hit those key, you know, that first, I had three platoons, which is unheard of now, but we were, my class of West Pointers and that my year group of officers had extended, we were like lieutenants for six years compared to like four now. Um, that's a drawdown thing too, from the cold war. So I ended up having three Aero scout platoons. I had a scout platoon in Korea. I had a scout platoon in the cavalry. Then I had a scout platoon in the um, the first and twenty fourth Viper, the attack battalion, Apache battalion. That's the guys I took to Desert Storm with me. So I flew and flew and flew for my first five years. Had a staff gig, and then and then just some really cool opportunities. Some, you know, I went to the Armor Advanced Course, and then I went to Ranger School as a, a mid grade captain. Wow. Um, just bizarre as an aviator, and then because they keep changing their mind whether aviators can go to ranger school or not. I had a window where they were allowing aviators to go, and somebody said, "Why don't you go, bro?" And I, I was the—I think I was the second oldest guy in my class at ranger school at the time. And so, 
I've had these kind of breaks, you know what I mean? That kind mm-hmm. of kept me going. And and I did have a break at service. I got out at 13 um, for a host of good reasons. Um, frankly, my I actually mentioned President Clinton's impeachment in my re- resignation letter, to be wow. honest. I was, <laughs> I was that guy, you know, which is interesting considering my politics today. But um, I was working with General Tommy Franks at the time and uh, as his, uh, one of his assistants, and I was his PowerPoint guy. And he was like, yeah, I, I was frustrated. I got out of 13. I did join the reserves uh, there in Atlanta where you are. And, uh, you know, then they threw a war <laughs> two years later. Yeah. It sucks you back in. Um, yeah, it does that, doesn't it? <laughs> before, before we get to that, let's go back to your time heading to Desert Storm. So, you know, as the buildup of this thing is happening, um, you know, we see that Saddam invades Kuwait and the world's starting to change. When do you get a first inkling that – you might have to go into combat. So we were 24th ID. So we were part of 18th Airborne Corps. So right. we were part of what they used to call the, used to call the rapid deployment force, um, which was the thing. We joked that we were going to be the last ones they sent, that, but because we're the heavy division. But when we, I remember say, I was I had just moved to a new apartment with my first wife Jennifer, um, and we were. I remember she, we just moved in together, and we were we were, in, we were we were engaged but not married, and we didn't have TV. And I remember going to my fellow one of my fellow platooners was in the complex. I remember sitting on the floor. The wives were on the couch talking. He and I were watching the news about the invasion of Kuwait. And we're both like, dude, that's like all of our shit sand colored. <laughs> you know, you know, you notice that, right? All of our trucks are sand colored. Like, right. Yeah, our ships, you know, well, you know, because people forget we painted everything green for I Vietnam know, and left it that was way. Always tan. Yeah. yeah. The 24th ID was tan. And we're like, damn, man, that that's weird. And we just got back from NTC. So again, we were, we had just gotten back. So all those as a young officer, you know, like there's some real coincidences here. They're going to call somebody. And sure enough, um, I remember we got the call about 2 a.m. and hey, we're doing a, a deployment drill. And I get in and my battalion commander, even uh, Tom Stewart, uh, I was the acting company commander at the time. He's like, yeah, it's just a drill. I'm going to go up to the division. I got a meeting. You guys hang out. When we get back. We'll get some donuts. And he comes back like, you know, eyes wide pale he's like fellas uh we're freaking deploying like what (laughs) you know and and we're like holy shit and sure enough yeah within it all happened very quick i actually married uh, jennifer we we said hey because back then there wasn't any support for girlfriends or fiancés right you know and so i say let's we ran down to the courthouse and got married uh, which ended up being like national news somehow (laughs) really uh, why oh um because it's a funny story, classic story. We were out watching. So a big thing they were doing in Savannah was people would stand inside the road and watch us, all the trucks, co- convoys going to the port. Because we were shipping out of Fort Stewart sure. up into Savannah into the port. And we lived right on the highway on the way. So we were literally standing on the corner watching all the convoys go by with all of our equipment from Fort Stewart. And she and I are chit-chatting. And, the, and we start chit-chatting with this woman next to us who ended up being a reporter. And and she's like, oh wow, so you're going? I said, yeah. And, and she's like, what's your guys? Oh, we just got married. She goes, what? You just got married? Like, yeah, yesterday. She's like, what? <laughs> and she goes, oh, I'd love to tell that story. So we gave her some pictures from the courthouse wedding and classic story media. Yeah, they, you know how it goes. They put it in the local paper. The AP picked it up. Um, Soldiers Magazine picked it up. Wow. Uh, Today Show picked. It. Yeah, just you know how that goes. Now, did so, you guys get married just because there was extra benefits for married people when you deploy? It, to me, it was her being a part of the family resource group. Gotcha. And, okay. And that's, it was like information flow. I knew that, in, especially in the old days, again, girlfriends didn't count. So they'd be calling my mom and dad. They wouldn't be calling the woman I lived with. So we said, look, we're, get, we're engaged anyways. Let's just get married, be done with it. Um, and so we got married in the courthouse real quick. By the way, I forgot you know? to ask you. You, know, you mentioned you went to flight school. How did you pick which helicopter you wanted? So I, I, you know, I, I, I knew you know, the, the first day of we, we get – I arrived at Fort Rocker, end up in a roommate with a guy just literally – ran into it in processing and random strangers we all had to live together and it's a funny we're driving to work 
and our first day on, on base for uh, officer's base, of course. And at Fort at Fort uh, Rucker, there's Guthrie Army Airfield right there on Fort Rucker. And there's there was an active duty at the time. There was an active duty attack battalion there, then Apache battalion. It, for whatever reason, it was stationed there. I think it belonged to 18th Corps, as a matter of fact. So we're driving on post, and I look over and I see the Chinooks, I see the Blackhawks, I see the Apaches, and then there's this little OH 58. If you remember the little tiny OH 58s, the old school, not the Deltas. We're talking Charlie model, you know, Belgian Ranger. One foot off the ground skid, the sexy little thing, a real cut, real sexy little angles, you know, a tiny aircraft. And I said to my buddy, I said, I said, I feel stupid. What aircraft is that? We, and I didn't even know. He's like, oh, that's OH 58 Scout. I said, oh, he goes, you know what? It's a single pilot aircraft, but it's got two seats. I mean, you, you know what the second seat for, is for? He goes, I said, no. He goes, well, the first seat's for the pilot and the second seat's for his balls. <laughs> I'm like, oh. wow. I'm flying that, you know? <laughs> you know. That sounds like my kind of mission, right? And, and she was, I, start, I start reading, like, yeah, scout, unarmed aircraft, you know, flying in. A, and back in those days, we would fly in unarmed ahead of the Apaches. We didn't actually fly in formation with them. We went in ahead of them. And I was like, that's kind of a cooking sexy little mission. You, you scoot, you know, scoot and shoot. And, uh, right. and I loved it. And I loved, I loved being a scout pilot. I mean, it's, it's the, the old 58 Charlies were, you strap that bird on. And, uh, and then I got to fly in Korea. I got to fly in the desert. I got to fly in JRTC. I mean, it's just a great aircraft. And um, again, I had been flying for five years by the time I went to war. So we were pretty good at what we did with those little scout birds. But yeah, just what a great aircraft. All right. So fast forward. Um, right. You guys are deploying forward to yep. Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, yep. I should say. Saudi Arabia. Um, yep. You know, you get there. Do you know what your mission is when you land on ground? So we get there and 24th ID's job, if you remember the history of it, was actually beast because at that point we thought Saddam was going to invade Saudi Arabia as well. So our first mission was to defend Saudi Arabia. So we set the 24th ID up on the corridors from the border of Kuwait down into um, the, 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 the oil field section of, of, of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we had a weird deal. Our boat broke down on the way over. Our, our, roll, our roll-on wash actually broke down. Well, so that's got to suck. Oh, it was a mess, man. So we ended up with a whole patch of tiny troops and pilots and shit. There was this cement factory they put us in. It was a disaster. Just like – it was like a refugee camp. And so we spent about three weeks there waiting for our stuff to arrive. We actually had to send guys to Spain to offload the ship on another one. Finally, our stuff arrived. We deployed – General McCaffrey wanted the 24th in the desert, everybody. So where other Apache units, other helicopter units deployed like airfields all over the region, we actually went out into the desert and set up our, our FOB. We didn't call them FOBs. And, <laughs> in, in the middle of nowhere. We, and so we, we spent – you know, four months fighting the dust, trying to trying to keep our aircraft. I mean, every little trick you can from pouring oil directly on the, uh, on there, and then they gave us this weird like concrete thing that that would actually make the sand hard. But that only lasted a few flights, and you start turning to dust again. And eventually, they built those like melt metal pads out in the middle of the desert. But we stayed in the desert. That was one of the weird things about twenty fourth. But it made us a little bit more resilient as far as our ability to operate. And then we just trained. So we spent four or five months just flying our asses off, doing battle drills, preparing, you know, figuring out what the defense if it did come down right. that quarter. Well, yeah, that was so that was the time was of Desert mission. Shield before Desert we officially Shield, right. turned into Desert Storm. Right. Um, so, do you get a sense throughout Desert Shield? Are you sitting there thinking that you know this is never going to happen? I don't know what the hell we're doing yeah. here. We're kind of wasting our time. Feeling. Well, we knew it was something was up when everybody kept coming, right? We, when we first got there at the 82nd, it was funny. I remember running an 82nd guys like the DFAC that we were using at one of the Air Force, the at the Air Force, uh, King Khalid Air Force Base, uh, KKF, and. Uh, and it was funny. The 82nd guy was like, well, glad you guys – glad you heavy fuckers are here. We're leaving. I'm like, nah, bro, I don't think you are. <laughs> yeah, we're the rabbit to point for it. So yeah, our job is to be ready for the, the big one. I'm like, I think this is it, bro. And I, I, remember, I remember sitting there. I'm just a lieutenant. as another lieutenant. I'm like, 
I hear you, man. I'm not sure what you think is going on here. I think this actually may be the reason you exist. And, you know, <laughs> and, and that was a clue. They didn't leave, right? They, they stayed. I mean, and then more folks, folks keep coming. Then they brought in Europe. So we knew we were building up to something that was obvious. So we kind of had a feeling what it was going to be early on. Um, so I just trained my guys. We trained and trained and trained. It flew and flew. I mean, we just – we were flying constantly, keeping those aircraft up, doing services in the desert. It was amazing. You know, we'd build just a tent up around the aircraft and service it and then tear the tent down. It was uh, – it was quite a it was quite a time, but yeah, as it got closer and closer, it was obvious. Then we got the orders pretty early. Um, what what do you remember about hearing? Hey, we're going forward into into Iraq or into Kuwait. I can remember sitting around. We got the op order. I remember going back. I had a great company commander named Doug Gurman, who I'm still in touch with. And uh, I remember he he had gotten a big package for his birthday. You know, you know, Vienna sausages and all that stuff. And I remember sitting in his little tent, just going, "Okay, well, okay, this is it. We're going to war. We're." We're going to be war. You know, it was kind of funny. I remember literally having a discussion. I was like, wow, we're going to be combat veterans. <laughs> and, and you know how it was at that point? We'd, we'd had Panama, we'd had, you know, Grenada, but there really wasn't a lot of big fights in my, you know, in that my career at that point, even going back to the 70s. Um, so it was really interesting. We, we kind of knew we were, there's just one of the wonderful things about serving, and I think you experienced it, is that the, it, you, you're in a moment in history, you know it. There's, there's just times sure. you're sitting there and you're like, wow, I'm, there's going to be books written about this someday. I'm sitting here and I think I always had a sense – that's one of the things I loved about the service and, and throughout my career ended up being that way. It's like, wow, I'm sitting here and that's what we, we, we sensed. Um, I mean, we, we were highly confident. I had a great team of, of crews and uh, the Apache guys were – we and Doug was a great trainer. I mean we were, we were ready. I mean that was – the best feeling was knowing you're going into combat as absolutely ready as you can be and that's a rare feeling I think. I was very fortunate to have that. All right, so uh, people need to kind of get the background of what happens for you in Desert Storm, um, and take me through sort of you know uh, what happens um, you know for your unit and the guys that you're in charge of as far as you know uh, the first mission. Is it the first mission you guys have? It was one of the fir- it was the, the first, first actual combat mission we've okay. done. So what happened was, as, as the as the division moved up to the border for the invasion, they made the decision that 24th ID would be the big left hook. So we went up north and then cut left down down the uh, Route Seven. I think it was Route Seven. I forget. Um, and so we were set up to the left of Kuwait, basically uh, the the bottom of Iraq. Immediately as we were getting, you know, as we were setting up security, we started doing patrols on the border to make sure the Iraqis didn't know we were there. There was a lot of you know radio silence. But what we were frustrations, we, we, we started having a lot of frustration early on. The, the, for example, the, the maps they gave us were literally black and white printouts. We were given photocopies of actual maps to use. Um, that was nuts. And then as we were getting – as the air war – so the air war opens up. That's when we moved up. And I think General McCaffrey, I don't want to speak for him, but my understanding for him was he was getting frustrated about what the attack routes, that there was three quarters we'd be falling into Iraq, what they really looked like. That that wasn't – it wasn't just open desert country to popular belief. There was a lot of terrain down there, wadis and all that sort of thing. And so as the air war developed, we were training a little bit, but immediately we ran into a lot of problems with there. One, it was dusty as all hell. Um, it was fresh desert. A lot of these wadis were just powder, like talcum powder. So when you land a couple of times, all of a sudden you're just dusting out every time you take off. And it was pitch black. I mean, there was, there was nothing out there. It was just desert and darkness. And, and we're flying just good time, you know, old style MVGs, like series four MVGs in the black, in the, uh, the 58s. The Apache guys had FLIR, um, but we had just, and which didn't always help too, but we, we at least all we had was MVG. So you're out in this pitch black and, as we approached the invasion date of the ground war, um, 
we'd had a couple of events. So I had one mission where um, we got called out in the middle of the night because there was a report of Iraqis bumping onto us on the border. I got I took off uh, middle of the night with an Apache team, um, followed the Apaches up to where this was going on, landed, I ended up running into my West, one of my West Point classmates of all things on the ground. And basically they said, we have a standoff. They're looking at us. We're looking at them. We're getting ready to open fire. Can you confirm the target? I get up in the aircraft. The Apache's like, yeah, don't let me shoot. It's it's our own people looking at each other. <laughs> I mean, we literally, there's like a right. standoff between, you know, sister units looking at each other. And luckily, and then the funny thing, that not funny in retrospect, was that like, hey, Fred, uh, you know, Lieutenant Wellman, go report to the assistant division commander and his little talk there and back brief him. No, that's great. Where's that? <laughs> you know, I mean, literally, I got a black and white map, right? You know, I had no GPS. I had, you know, time distance heading. Um, luckily, the Apache's like, hey, we'll lead you there because they had, had Loring, GPS, what it was then. They lead me to the tent. I land. It's pitch ass black. I remember briefing the division commander, the, the, the one star going, yeah, sir, we were like over here, like big hand wave, you know. <laughs> Somewhere no in this area we right here. The, yeah, you know, all of Saudi Arabia, you know. <laughs> and, but the point, and I took off and getting back, it was really dark. Um, I was flying with an E4, great kid named Chris Anderson. And that's, we had a, a list of observers then. It wasn't actually another pilot. I was the only pilot in the aircraft. And it was treacherous, man. I remember trying to land in a Hal. One of my pilots, who you'll hear more, see you to a Hal Reichel. It literally came to my landing spot with two flashlights and laid on the ground so I could see my landing pad. It was so dark. Um, and I landed basically on, on Hal's head basically to try and land. And so we were really – Chris and I were – of the three crews, we were the most junior of, even with all my flying experience, we were still the most junior crew of my three scout time. So flash forward the next couple of days, we get word the division wants to do um, some route recons of the division attack routes. Um, again, the way we flew was the scouts lead and then the Apaches follow or scouts fly in the Apache formation with them. But we were the navigators. We were the scouts. That was our job. Back then, the Apaches were not trained in scouting. Their, their job was to fly up to a target, blow it up and fly out. That Our job was everything else. It's different now, but then it was. So the first night they did it, they uh, we fought tooth and nail. They insisted on only having Apaches go. And so the Apaches went in the first night and it was not great. I mean, they, they did go off route. They ended up getting some crap. So we staged a little intervention with the battalion commander. said, look, we want to send scouts in the next mission. You got to let us go. And uh, and he relented. said, all right, you can skin a scout weapons team. So one scout, two Apaches. Um two of them for tonight's mission. And so I was feeling victorious, but I get back and my crews, my two crews came to me and said, look, sir, you know, I know you want to go, you're the platoon leader, but you're the most junior. You already had one challenging night when Chris and I blacked out one night, almost crashed the aircraft. Um, you know, we're going to, we're, you know, you, you need to stay home. Right. And their reason was sound as, as a safe, you know, safe crew with the crew mix. I mean, they were the two more senior, you know, so I, I actually, but did home. you feel, even though you're the most junior, did you feel the mission, was something you couldn't handle? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. Okay. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's just. But with only two out of three crews going, you want to send your best, and 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 we were being watched. I mean, it was a big test for the scouts. Um, so I wanted to have my best team forward. So I I sat down with the country commander, and he agreed. He goes, "Yeah, you you should you know sit this one out. Let Hal go. Let let Dennis Midgley go, who was my instructor pilot actually." And so so we sent out of the two true, we sent the two senior warrant officer crews. Uh, and I, I sat the thing out back at the battalion headquarters. So there we are. Um, they launched the mission. I'm sitting back in the in the FOB and uh, monitoring in the battalion headquarters. And at some point, the crews got into Iraq, and as near as we could tell, they hit they hit some fog layers. And at 
they came back across. They, they aboarded the mission and came back, and Hal and Mike didn't come back. My air crew, my 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 CO two Hal Hal Reichel and uh, specialist Mike Daniels uh, aircraft just didn't come back. They had separated from the flight. They they called that they were, they called they're hitting weather. The procedure should be climb. You climb out and you, you take risk of getting shot down. But you because we used to say and the, the ground has a kill ratio of one Right. When you hit the ground, you're always going to die. If you climb up, maybe a missile will hit you, maybe it won't. So it's, it's air is always better. Air, two things you always want when you're flying any, any aircraft, airspeed, velocity, and, and altitude. Airspeed, velocity, altitude, right? <laughs> so you want, speed, you want speed and air. So the two things, that, the two life-saving things you always get is more speed, more, more altitude. And so that was the procedure. So in theory, they should have climbed out, turned around, flew back to Saudi Arabia. Um, but they never showed up. And so after a long sleepless night, um, we took the, the boss, uh, the battalion commander took a decision to send in broad daylight uh, a whole company of Apaches in to fly the same route with Blackhawks. And uh, they found Hal and Mike about 30 or 40 Ks into Saudi into Iraq where they had apparently flown straight into the ground about 90 knots and the aircraft had flipped six times, killing them instantly. Right. So, now, did you could you tell that from the crash? Or you got all the information after the fact? Yeah. And- oh, yeah. We go. Yeah. We, it was pretty obvious what happened. They had, you know, they had, at, at, at some point, they had just. You know, and, and you know, I can't criticize. I mean, it, you know, what you do, you look at the map, you look down at the map for a second. You, it's it's easy to do when you're flying at ninety knots. Um, you know, six ten feet off the ground, it's it's a split second. Is all it takes is one second, and then all of a sudden you're on the ground. And uh, so it was real. It was up. That was basically one third of my combat power. I lost, you know, two of two of one of my aircraft of three. Uh, I lost uh, two key members of our team, and uh, and it was tough. I mean, the division only lost eight people. Twenty uh, fourth ID only lost eight people from the actual division. Um, so, I mean, I asked the question sort of knowing the answer, but how much do you blame yourself? Uh, for many years, it's it's you know that was the, that was that was when you know I've been very open. I think if you follow me on social media, I'm very open about my um, my struggles with PTSD and survivor's guilt. Um, it was such a weird time. I mean, the '90s was weird. It wasn't. It, it's bad now, but I mean, Jesus, man, we we did. How am I got killed? We did a memorial service the next day. I got called out of their memorial service for another mission. I, I literally did the whole, you know, you know, Battle of Britain, you know, run and grab your gear and jump your helicopter thing. Uh, we were doing that a lot for every little Iraqi tank that bumped up the border. Um, and then we invaded a couple days later, you know, and then, you know, that was it. So we, and then I was home. I mean, 24th ID did all the way the big left hook, you know, and then we came. I was home. I was home three weeks after they died. But I mean, I- do you ever get a chance to process the grief? No, at that point we didn't. You know, it was and that was not even after you had gotten home. No, you were supposed to be normal when you got home. I mean, nobody talked about it. We got home um, and went back to work. I mean, everybody did. It was in the nineties. We didn't talk. I, I don't remember. Literally, I don't think we had a. I don't remember. At least I could be wrong. My memory is weird. You know how it goes. Uh, yeah. I don't remember a memorial service for them when we got home. Uh, I think there was some minor memorial service for the division guys, but. But no, we went right back to business as normal. I mean, you just didn't talk about it. That mission you went out on after the memorial service, um, obviously there's anger, right, that you want to oh, yeah. unleash. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and so you, 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 you do that. And Let me phrase the question this way. Was that done carelessly or recklessly? No, we were real pro, but we had a mission. You know, by so the twenty four D by the time we did, we flew into Iraq um, during the invasion, um, we made our way all almost to uh, 
yeah, forgive me. It was right there on the highway in the middle there. It's, it's uh, Talil. Talil. Talil's the airbase. And so that was our first, our first big firefight was up at Talil Air Base, pretty far up near Route mm-hmm. 1 at the Baghdad to Basra yep. Highway. And then our, our biggest combat mission came that day. McCaffrey called us out because Hammerot, they, we, they'd seen uh, organiza- organized units on the, on the highway there. So I took my scouts and my Apaches up north and attacked from the south, and we were relentless. I mean, we, we just rolled down that highway, killing everything in our way. I remember you know, hi- they were hiding under bridges. We were, we were, la- we were lancing hellfires underneath bridges. Um, I, you know, I actually almost ran out of fuel because I was – yeah, they had my 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 air my, my air scout uh, Chris was like he used to have a, a pointer he'd like stand his pointer and, like tap on the gas gauge <laughs> like we're running out of fuel you know I mean literally I'm like all right god damn it we're done we're going back we we killed you know we killed we 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 were relentless I and mean, it was ruthless and then um and, and we went back and that mission was unbelievable and then the big one was the big final fight where we were just unleashed hell on those guys when you look back on that do you feel like any of it was irresponsible to a certain extent uh no. Okay. I don't. I really don't. Um, again, and, and, I, I, I go back to Doug Gurman. I, it's funny. It, it, it really is a study in leadership in many ways. Tom Stewart, the battalion commander, Doug, and McCaffrey too. I'll give him credit. But especially like my company commander, Doug Gurman, who retired as lieutenant colonel as well. Doug was such a pro. He good old boy from Arkansas, but I think he's a West Point grad too. But Doug was so good at getting us back on task. Like this, this happened – but we have a mission, and we're professionals. And and I had a, honestly, it was one of the finest fighting forces I ever was a part of that that company, Alpha Company, uh, First Twenty Fourth Aviation. They were just we had a mission. Now we were relentless and we were ruthless, and we we didn't go home with much ammo on our on our wings every time. Like we we emptied those aircraft out, and we did our business. Um, but I don't think we were ever excessive, and we never did anything. You know what I'm saying? But sure. I mean, I saw some horrible stuff. That last fight, the Hammurabi Division, the famous Causeway battle. That it's the day after the ceasefire. Um, yeah, Hammurabi Republican Guard bumped into the 24th ID, started a firefight. General McCaffrey decided to show them what a mistake that was. Um, we found we found lines and lines of tanks and personnel carriers lined up to cross a single bridge, and we just we rolled three Apache companies in on them one after another. Um, you can turn on the military channel right now, and you'll see video footage. It was it's famous. Of, you probably see all the times where the Apaches like. The you know lazing the target boom next target boom next target boom right. we had the whole process where we had one Apache lazing everything and we just shoot their missiles to them and it was just marching them down it was it was it was something to see uh, all right so you end up getting back um, yeah and by the way you know just pause it packing all that uh, th- those emotions away in a box that you're not supposed to open for many years theoretically yep. That's um, and I put that on pause because well. Reality hits you personally, as does tragedy, uh, after you get back. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine how you stack what happens next on what you've already been through. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I, I went home. Um, Jennifer and I got properly married in the court uh, or the church. Ended up getting – I got with the advanced course of Fort Knox, Kentucky – and then assigned the 101st Airborne after Ranger School. Uh, get the 101st Airborne. Jennifer gets pregnant finally, and uh, she's seven and a half months pregnant. And I'm a company commander for a, a headquarters company in Apache Battalion. And uh, Jen goes down to ten- Nashville to run some errands. And when she comes back, uh, unfortunately, she was in a, a terrible car accident. Her, her vehicle was T-boned, and, and she was killed instantly in a car crash. Um, so I was 29 years old, uh, sitting in a training meeting, sitting in a training meeting when my wife got killed and my baby got killed. So, yeah, it was pretty brutal, especially you know, it was like a double tap. You know, within three years of each other, basically, it was less than three years. Did you allow yourself 
grief this time around? Because, you know, we find out because we become almost robotic at times when it comes to grief, right? Because it's what we're trained. So you're able to pack away the first set of grief. Did that same sort of thing happen after your wife was killed? So I was a company commander, as I mentioned, the 101st Airborne. Right. So I have a deployment unit. So Jennifer, Jennifer got killed and the baby got killed. I had, I took leave, leave, put them in the ground and everything I had to do. They were from New York. I went to New York. I got back to try and get my personal affairs in order. And just, just about 10 days after she died, um, Saddam massed his troops on the Kuwaiti border again. People forget that in October of 94. And President Clinton at the time said, hey, we're not going to put up with that. So they mobilized with great fanfare the 101st Airborne. And took all three Apache battalions and put us on airplanes to fly to Kuwait. And so we we weren't even on a training. We were in a, we were in a training cycle. We weren't even deployable at the time. But they said, now you're deploying. So I actually came off leave some 10 days after my wife died to pack up my company and take them to Kuwait. And so, you know, so here I worked that. And then we had a brand new battalion commander. He took command the day after my wife was killed, the day after my wife was killed. And he's like, oh, but we got to train. So let's go to the field instead if we're not going to deploy so I had to work on 30 straight days um, without a day off after my wife was killed. So essentially, you didn't even have time to grieve. No. And then and then there was just a weird deal. I won't besmirch someone. He, he's out there still. I know he works in the defense industry now, but that, that colonel was not a kind person. And so um, he, did, he made some very key decisions that actually ended up causing me a lot of grief later. But you know, not let me take leave. Um, he actually belittled my grief. Uh, and so it, it was pretty bad. And so we lasted about three months and then I came, I was coming apart the seams at that point, not sleeping, you know, a lot of channel. I had a great first sergeant who kind of kept me out of trouble when he found me sleeping in my car. Um, you know, cause I came to work at 3am, uh, or didn't go home. And so came to a, came to a, you know, the army's a funny bird, right? The army can damage you and the army can take care of you. Right. So about Christmas time, I was coming apart. She got killed in September. At Christmas, pretty much all bets were off as far as my mental health. It was just a train wreck. And uh, the decision was made to let me PCS out of there. So I actually PCS to Hawaii. Do you – are you able to understand what you're going through at this moment? Or is, are you in so much grief that you can't even process, you know, day-to-day actions and motions and anything else? Um, I mean, It's you- a bit of a blur. I think at that point it was a bit of a blur. I mean, I think I tried to do the work – but like I said, I was, I was, a, I was a train wreck. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was, you know, doing, I wasn't, I wasn't a good officer, if you will, you know, at that point. So there's no question in my mind that I, I actually did not get any counseling at Fort Campbell. Um, I wasn't offered any counseling at Fort Campbell. It's a weird deal. You know, the thing about our, especially aviation, right? Pilots die all the time. I lost an air crew in every single unit I was ever assigned to at some point, peacetime, uh, Jennifer and I used to talk about what would happen when I got killed in a plane crash or a helicopter crash. It was just, we, you know, we had a whole funeral plan, right? We never talked about her. It was just, it was just to have, to have a spouse get killed, um, was really shocking. I remember the funeral, the, the chapel was overflowing with people. General Petraeus was there as a young Colonel. Um, and so, um, but no, it just wasn't, it wasn't normal. And again, in the nineties, what'd we do? We we dust ourselves off. We went back to work. We didn't talk about PTSD. We didn't talk about grief. You Officers keep working. I was a tough guy ranger, you know. I thought that was I thought that was the answer. Was and now, of course, what do I deal with now? Thirty or twenty years later. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it always comes up. It's inevitable. It comes up. Yeah, you, you, you no can't. Escaping. And the problem is, you don't know when and where it boils over, and and how yeah. you react to it, and how well you're prepared for it, sort of dictates Man, got, the actions I've, in those moments. I've got this great. I'm very. I'm involved with a really cool lady right now. She's also a widow, and uh, and she says it really best all the time. She says nobody gets off scot free. <laughs> you know, 100%. nobody nobody gets out of this life scot free. And and 
people like us, it's interesting to be involved with somebody who happened to be widows herself is, you know, neither of us, you know, you know, it, you just, you, you have to raise your kids, you have to go on. Um, but none of us get off without some scuff marks. And I definitely got my scuff marks and got more, you know, that's the thing. It's a military career doesn't really give you a break. It's not, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be more death. And, um, that's just how it goes. All right. So you PCS to Hawaii and you just mentioned yep. you end up yep. meeting, uh, your second wife. Yep. There as well. Yep. Um, but kids, uh, there's, kids. there's a little bit of a, <laughs> there's a little bit of a sort of, you know, I guess sort of scary coincidence that you both went through something similar, correct? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. It's uh, one of our very first phone calls we had, um, Crystal's her name. Um, we're talking about, you know, I used to joke when I was a widower, when you met women, they either either got the pouty face, like oh, or they fleed, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, and neither of, I didn't want to be mothered, and I didn't want, and I didn't want to chase people off. So I, I learned to just like let that out up front. Like, hey, by the way, <laughs> I'm a right. widow. You know, I'm only 29, but my wife got killed, and um, and sure enough, I was talking to Crystal on the phone. So Jennifer was seven and a half months pregnant, she was killed, and uh, in a car accident. And so I'm talking to Crystal, and I told her the story, and she basically gets all flustered and hangs up. I'm like, all right, so that's the running. So, but she calls me back later. She's had, here's the thing, you know, my son Dylan, who's at that time too, um, was born cause I was in a car accident when I was seven and a half months pregnant wow. and, uh, they survived. Both of them survived. Whereas of course Jennifer had not. So it was just a weird sort of, you know, those fateful moments. I mean, fate, fate tends to, there's always a theme in my life of fate intervening. Like I mentioned who I'm dating right now. It's like, it just seems like there's these, these, the people you need to, fate will handle the people you need when you need them. Yeah. And, uh, so, but, uh, yeah, so we, we had a wonderful relationship, um, last 25 years and we got married very quickly there, just four months, had two, I went to Hawaii as a single widower, came back three years later as a married father of four, <laughs> you know, go right. bigger, don't go, you know, ended up at, uh, you know, ended up in Atlanta, uh, and, uh, just kind of went on. Just well, went on. and you mentioned that, you know, you had a, a break in service, um, yeah. you decide to get off active duty. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, you know, I was at the 13 year mark. Um, it, a little bit was aviation politics. I was still flying OH 58s, which at that point didn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, you know, I had a helicopter I was supposed to be flying that didn't exist. And for some reason, the aviation branch couldn't get me a new one. That was frustrating. I, I had a, a good career. I was general Franks's special assistant. He had hand selected me to, you know, assist be his guy, PowerPoint and speechwriter. I was a speechwriter basically, um, at third army headquarters there in Atlanta. So I had a really good career. Uh, but I just, we were in Atlanta. Um, my wife at the time got a job as a flight attendant with Delta. You know, we, we had a pretty good life. Um, and I, I was frustrated with the army and the direction it was going at that time. And so I made the decision to get out at 13. Um, General Franks was actually very kind about it. He was like, no, you're doing the right thing. You know, he, he used to joke. He said, you know, Fred, I'm going to tell you a story. We all get out. Everybody gets out of the army. It's just a matter of when. He goes, uh, and the guys that get out at 13 end up being the bosses of the guys that get out at 30, <laughs> which is not completely true, but, you know, no, it's an interesting it's way not. to put it, right? You know, but here we are. And so I got out, got a job as a project management consultant, and then got slipped into politics the first time in my little hometown of Peachtree City, Georgia, uh, running for mayor of Peachtree City. And uh, it was just, you know, life is funny like that. So one, yeah. day, one day you're just Joe Blow, and the next day you're running for mayor. It was just interesting. For a guy who finished in the bottom third of his uh, West Point class, you ended up working for two very high-profile generals. I mean, there's yeah. I, yeah. Is that coincidence, yeah. luck, or three, really? Um, you know, I, I, Tommy Franks is an interesting story. I don't tell it often. Uh, we were in. We I got to know him pretty well. We were in Egypt, and we were doing Bright Star. 
Uh, if you remember, Bryce was this giant training exercise you used to do every year in Egypt, up in northern Egypt in the desert. Seven, eight countries. It was amazing. I got stuck, just one of those weird deals. I was an operations officer in the, in the G3 shop, and I got stuck with the job to actually put the thing together. So I ended up recruiting, like, we had a joint staff. I recruited from seven countries. And then once we got to Egypt, they decided to make me a, the new chief of a new branch called Future Operations. And so my job was to go between current ops and plans. And it was a new thing. Tommy wanted to do it. It was a, it was a new concept and doctrine at the time. So we were one of the first ones to have a future ops sell. And for reasons I can't explain, they put me in charge as a, young, a very young major. And so – like brand new major. And so I was running that. And it's just a funny story. We uh, – the G3 comes in and goes, hey, uh, General Franks wants you to take on a battlefield tour. I'm like – and I'm like, sir, I haven't, I haven't left this trailer. You know? <laughs> I don't even know where the battlefield is from here. You know, <laughs> you know? He's like, and he's laughing. I remember what was his name? My God, he was laughing. He goes, yeah, yeah, enjoy. I'm like, God damn it, <laughs> you know. So get the whole of the Blackhawk crew. Like, all right, here's. Like, we, I remember sitting in front of the battlefield. It's like a big football field, you know, a gigantic sky. And we ended up coming up with these checkpoints, right? And, and we're you know, okay. Here's where the Marines are. Here's the Egyptians are. We had the whole thing rehearsed and. Uh, so sure enough, the next day I find myself on a Blackhawk with me and just me and John, just me and Jenna Franks, and uh, in the back of a Blackhawk, and we're flying along the battlefield. And luckily, the pilot's like, "Here we are, at checkpoint A." I'm like, "Oh, here you go, sir. Here are the Marines to your left, <laughs> you know." And and then we start talking, and it turns out old Tommy Franks was a field artillery officer and had served in uh, in old Loaches, OH sixes in Vietnam oh, as wow. a field, field yeah field artillery. So he was a scout of all things. So we started telling scout war stories, you know, from Desert Storm and from Vietnam and, and just kind of hit it off. And uh, we get back and uh, my boss comes in. He goes, you did it again. I'm like, what now? He's like, yeah, Frank's wants you to be his assistant when we get back. I'm like, come on. <laughs> you know, like, all right. So well, so he, he liked the – I guess he liked the way I briefed basically. is how it, just yeah. – so I get back, and the next thing you know, I'm, I'm the special assistant to a three-star general and uh, helping him write his PowerPoints and speeches and traveling around the country with him. So it was really a unique experience. And you know, Frank's is a unique character. Obviously, his, his place in history is unique because of what happened in Iraq and the initial invasion of Afghanistan and all. But uh, he was a good old, good old Texas boy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of those running around the Army, you know, good yeah, old Texas yeah. boys, good old Georgia boys, good old Arkansas boys. A lot and, of us. I'm just a kid from Missouri, right? And then, of course, yeah. Petraeus – and it was my professor at Westmore. So I had had him when I was a cadet and, uh, and he had, he taught, it was when he was getting his doctorate actually. And so he let, let him teach a little international relations seminar class, just eight cadets. And we would drink coffee and talk about international relations. And I got to know him pretty intimately. And that's how I know him. I'm still waiting for me to make it big in the army. So someone goes, Hey, just a little kid from New York, you know, cause you never hear about the New York guys ever getting <laughs> to the top. Nobody, yeah. just, so just doing my thing, you know, well, that was Frank's line, right? I'm just a, I'm a product of the Texas public school system, but even I know that's bullshit. God, generals, <laughs> always, generals always say that I'm a product they of do. this public school system. Yeah, like it's crying line. out loud. Frank's. Yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah, it it's one of those well. go-to lines for for high-level yeah, army yeah. officers who try to endear themselves there. who try to endear themselves to the room of people who just don't want to say anything wrong in front of the individual right exactly all it, right it, it gets cliche mm -hmm. um so you're running for mayor uh by the way did, i know 9-11 happens while you're running but what happens as far right. as the election is concerned so i was i had just filed i was running and it was i i, I got mobilized i was a reservist at third army or actually forces command and it's funny because nobody knew who i was in that reserve unit i kind of kept a low profile and i got mobilized that day i got called and I, so i hadn't done my annual training because i was running for mayor all summer and here it is september 11th the end of the fiscal year so the first thing i did was call every asshole had done his at because we weren't sure how long it's going to last so i got called that night saying hey dude you haven't done at you're up i'm like shit all right so put my uniform on the next day so that november 12th or september 12th i'm in i'm in 
the operations center. First day, I'm literally the guy just answering the phone, right? Like for the other, like when the other guy went to the bathroom, I'd answer the phone. You know? And then by the end of the first day, one of my old generals walks in, right? I <laughs> said, uh, General Kelly, he was my brigade commander in Hawaii. And he comes wandering in and he's like, Fred Wilhelm. I'm like, oh, hey, sir. <laughs> he goes, God damn it. Hey, do you guys know who he is? Like, no, they don't. Let's not talk about it. He's like, hey, you know, he wrote these plans. You know? he, he was future ops. He's the third army, man. He, he should be running. He should be in plans. Like, sir, stop talking. And, and no shit. Next day I come in, I'm in charge of the entire crisis action center. And the third day I, put, I got put in a vault. <laughs> writing, wow. writing all the, yeah, literally in like three days, I went from just being Joe, answering the phone to, work in the vault and oh by the way here's your two-year orders I'm like shit and so i sat down with the wife at the time and to her credit she was like look obviously there's gonna be a war actually said on 9 11 because there's, there's gonna be a war i was like yeah we're we knew it was bin laden i knew from i i did nothing but middle east stuff the last six years of my career um she's like you know what do you want to do i said well i want to fight she's like well then you go fight and so I actually said, all right, I'll take the orders and I'll volunteer to go after duty. So I actually called up the army and, said, and so I dropped out of the mayor's race. I had to drop out at that point. I was working double shifts and you know, I had no time to run. So I dropped out of the mayor's race uh, in early September and uh, put the uniform on full time. And uh, six months later, I'm at Fort Rucker getting a Blackhawk transition. When you realize that you're going back to combat, is there any thought at any point in time of your previous combat experience and what had happened? There was actually an obsession. You know, I, honestly, I was obsessed. After what happened with Hal and Mike, I went into – I was real fortunate in that. So I'm, I am in the 101st Airborne, which is, you know, it's the 101st. They're a great unit. Right. I mean, and, and the 6th, the 101st, the Bata- Blackhawk Battalion. So I had a good fortune that one of my dead store commanders or staff officers was the commander. And so the way that was organized back then, you had three Apache battalions and you had the cavalry squadron in the 101st Aviation Brigade and then one Blackhawk Battalion, the 6th Bat, which is like the general support guys. And I also had the Pathfinder Company in there. It was really – it was like the cobbled together battalion, right? You had assault battalions and the other 159th Brigade, which did air assault. But my battalion was like every little weird shit from rescuing down pilots to inserting the Blackhawk – the uh, Pathfinders to drive the general. I had the general's aircraft as a matter of fact. Um, so we were a weird, weird unit and uh, – uh, and Petraeus was the division commander, um, which was awkward at first when my boss found that I knew him. <laughs> and uh, and so here we're going into Iraq. I had a battalion commander was a great guy, um, a, a very nice guy. And and you know situational leadership, right? And situational leadership, you, you can't have two nice guys at the head of the battalion, right? <laughs> you know. So uh, Chuck Chuck got to be the nice guy, and I had to be the flaming prick, right? <laughs> and so, but I went into that invasion saying, "Look, I'm not doing this again. I'm not bearing more men." I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep these men and men and women, by the way, alive. So as I went, as we prepared, I was ruthless in our training. Um, we had enough notice to do some training. I had to write some SOPs and like how to down the down pilot mission. Um, I was ruthless. And we had like, I actually took one company out of the rotation for that mission because the company commander refused to follow my SOP. I said, great, then you're not going to do the mission. Have a nice day. It was, it was just, I, I admit freely that if you probably talk to people from that time, they're going to tell you what a dick I was. <laughs> and I wear that with pride. <laughs> you, you know, it's like, but, but you know what? Every single one of those guys came up. We didn't lose a single soldier uh, from 601st during OIF-1. And I'm really proud of that because I think we were highly trained and we were ready for the mission. One of the things you did that was controversial was you moved – 
the co-pilot out of the co-pilot seat, right? And that right. was met with a lot of consternation. Now, well, the mission commander, yeah, right? The, so you know, it's it's essentially taking the you know for people on a convoy, taking the truck commander and make him sit in the back seat. So Correct. all he's staring at is the back of the head of somebody in front of him. You know, you well, we had a jump seat, so we could see the maps. Sure, but, but I'm, you know, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where the, the seat generally gives you what you feel is the best view of the battle yeah. space in front of you, right? And yeah. so. Uh, putting them in a, for lack of a better term, a subjugated seat um, yep. changes their position, changes their role. And guys in general, guys and gals in general, feel like they're losing some sort of command authority. And a young, a young captain, I get it. And, uh, but to, to, to take a young Blackhawk company commander, a captain, who has never run an air assault, because uh, he's a general support kind of commander, then, ha- then give him three aircraft with seats out. You've got about 18 dudes per cl- aircraft. Okay, that's a lot of folks. You've got... We gave them Apaches, so they also had a team of Apaches, two to three Apaches with them, um, in a flight, so five, going in night, night vision goggles across flot, uh, deep in enemy territory where somebody's been shot down. Um, flying the aircraft should not be his priority. Commanding the mission – oh, by the way, he's also coordinating with division. He's coordinating with corps. He's coordinating with the downed pilot. He's coordinating with Air Force, right? <laughs> you know, and, 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 then, and then you want to say, oh, also, I want you to fly the fuck out of the helicopter. It just is that's, – that's literally how Mike, how Mike got killed in my opinion. There, nobody was flying aircraft. You get killed in a helicopter when nobody's flying it, right? Makes and sense. so I was willing to be and, – and, and this was doctrine, by the way. The, the funny thing about this whole story is I was adhering to doctrine. Um, and, but I was getting resistance from my crews. I get it. I was that young guy. I was that young captain once. I get it. But if you want to do a mission where your mission is to go in very dangerous territory, holding the stick and then running a multi-aircraft mission at the same time can be a lot for a young man. Looking and, uh, back, any sort of regrets the way you handled things? Not one, not a single one. <laughs> you know, should I have been a nicer guy? Maybe. I don't know. But in the end, um, every single soldier came home. Um, we had a great SOP that ended up being the gold standard. Um, you know, we, uh, and the, what is, what is the price of what I think if, if as a leader in combat, your mission is to do the mission and bring everybody home. We did our mission in spades and everybody came home. So no, it, it is what it is. We did, we did good work. And the funny thing is halfway through the tour, the battalion commander changed out to a guy who was not as much of a nice guy. And I got switched to be the nice guy, <laughs> you know, so then I'm building the restaurant and uh, morale, you know, barbecues, you know, so, you know, you do what you got to do in leadership and combat, but uh, we did what we did. Now, so you had multiple tours uh, during the yeah. war on terror to Iraq, all of them. Um, yeah. Can you compare them? I mean, you know, I, I went to Iraq in 05 and 06, and then I went back for the closeout in 2011. And I see two, yeah. I almost see two different wars so to speak, my, in, in that time frame. Yeah. My wars are dramatically different because the first one, of course, I was an aviator at the troop level. We were the founding fathers of Q West Air Base in northern Iraq. I was one of the first guys there. Um, you know, tactical. I did civil affairs helping local Iraqis, you know, build schools. We built schools. We hearts built and planning. minds, baby. Hearts and minds. Yeah. So we did a lot of that and I loved it. And then, but then because of that, I ended up on TV. Um, again, I was a media savvy guy because I'd run for office. So, Petraeus figured out that he could throw me on TV and the story we were doing with building schools and clinics was a good story for what his goal was, which was that showing the world that we were rebuilding Iraq and that we were rebuilding the economy. So Petraeus just started sending media to my gate at QS. He's like, hey, BBC's coming. Take him out to your village. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so one day, it was a funny story. I got to know – I was really fortunate to know a wonderful person named Kira Phillips 
who's a CNN anchor. I think she's now at Fox. Um, just a lovely human being. And Kira did an interview with my family on July 4th because of my Atlanta connection, right? When I was running for mayor. And, uh, and we, and I did just regular hits there. So one day I told Kira a story about meeting some Iraqi kids and giving them a hug because I'm a good storyteller. And the, she breaks down in tears on camera. And, uh, it made, it made news that I made the anchor cry. And so Petraeus like emails like, God damn it, that made me cry. You should be a PIO. <laughs> and so, you know, yada, 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 I'd become a public affairs officer. I mean, it, it made sense. At that point, my military, my aviation career was over. I'd had that break in service. So I wasn't going to be a battalion commander or a brigade commander. That was pretty much my fate at that point. So, it, you know, at least it's a usable job skill. So I came back and ended up being the 101st Air Force PAO. And then I deployed to Iraq um, as a public affairs officer. So now I end up in Iraq with 18 Corps. Petraeus finds out I'm in country. Um, I actually took a trip up to him to visit our old sector. And he like poaches me over to his command. So I ended up being General Petraeus' spokesman at the training command. So I go from, you know, yeah, so now I'm, now I'm training the defense minister. <laughs> you know, I mean, talk about change. I mean, I went from, I went from the, you know. Was, I mean, I don't know if serendipity is the right word, but for crying out loud, like every break of good fortune, you keep running into the right people. Yeah, I, I, I've been lucky. I mean, I had, like I said, like I said, I had, I had every third boss like me. One of them was named Petraeus, and one of them was named Frank. So. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you get lucky sometimes. And you know, Petraeus, you know, I knew him for years. He's an interesting, you know, obviously he's a, a bit of. I mean, then not everybody knew who he was. He was, you know, he wasn't the legend that he is now. Uh, but he's always been a very generous boss and a mentor for me over those years. Uh, but then, you know, people don't talk about much. I, I mean, he talks about Petraeus, but who who replaced Petraeus six months into my tour? But Dempsey. Who ended up being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs? Also, I mean, two, I got, two different people. Yeah, I got a chance to meet him during my second tour. I mean, I, I, that's one of guy. those. That's one of those guys you get in the room and you automatically know you're going to be smarter by the time he leaves. I, exactly, and, and 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 the different leadership style. It was funny. I remember being in the command when he was leaving and Dancy was coming in, and, and one of my peers said, "You know, what do you think is going to be the biggest difference?" Right? I said, "The biggest difference is Petraeus is old school airborne, 82nd, 101st. You jump in and you figure it out." So we were we used to say our motto at Mitsdicky, we train building Iraqis was we we're we we're building the air, aircraft in flight under fire. Right? Dempsey's a tanker. Okay, it's a, I said, you know, a tanker, an armor officer doesn't leave the motor pool without knowing where his next tank of gas is. <laughs> okay, because then because the battle's over when they run out of gas. So we're going to go from kind of make it up as you go to you better have a damn plan. And sure, that was dramatically what had happened. And that's what made also Dempsey such a unique leader. Is he's very methodical. While he thinks quickly on his feet, he's 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 a his his mind is very. You know, he is constantly seeing second, third, fourth order effects from decisions that are made. And it made me a better communicator from learning from him and working with him, frankly. I, I hate to kind of, you know, skip over sure. those deployments and what happened. But I know I, we're I'm, talking for a while. I, I'm just kind of curious. When do you get to a point where you realize all the crap that you have been through is starting to bubble up to the surface? So I get out. Um, I, I did 20 years. And actually, third tour. So, okay, it's actually Harvard. So, I started having real problems when I was at Harvard. Uh, halfway through my tour, halfway through my time at Harvard, I was struggling with my mental health. Um, I had been battling suicidal ideations for years, keeping it quiet. Um, suicide was sort of my friend, if you will, my, my warm blanket that was always in the back of my mind at all times, which I found out later wasn't normal. Um, I got to a point during my time halfway through Harvard where I was really coming apart of the stream, which was between my second and third tours, 2006. Uh, and the wife, the first wife, uh, or my second one, sorry, Crystal was like, hey, look, here's the deal, man. If you don't see a counselor today, we won't be here when you get home. Okay. So I went and saw a counselor at the student clinic. Um, it was great. This hippie chick who, you know, uh, helped me kind of work through 
you know, discovery of what was going on. And the funny thing about it was we, for years, we skipped on the surface. We dealt with the stress. We dealt with my depression. Like here, when you get depressed, do this, but no one ever thought to go deep into, and back then we didn't think about enough, you know, at, could it be PTSD? Because I didn't think I had PTSD. How could I possibly have PTSD? Nobody blew me up. I, I barely got shot at. I mean, I didn't flying, but nothing like truly that would be a, a traumatic experience for the most part. But what we found out, of course, was death, death, death. You know, the wife got killed. The men got killed. My my doctor that I worked, my shake got murdered in the clinic I built for him in 2012. Um, my interpreter, who I was very, very close to like a brother, was beheaded on camera right after I left Iraq in 2004. You know, I I'd had everybody that worked with me, every Iraqi that worked with me was murdered by 2012. And so – that all piled up. But again, I didn't see any of that. I saw myself, I'll get depressed. I saw myself doing inappropriate behavior for a, a, a good man. And, uh, and so I kind of muddled through Harvard. I got, so I did better with my depression. I went back to Iraq in 2008 and it just came apart of the scene. But I actually, I don't tell the story often, but I actually came back my first, my third Iraq tour early. I was redeployed early because I was, I had suicidal ideations and, uh, my chief of staff said, you know, you know, what do you want to do? My wife was sick of it. Um, I, I came home early. So I came home. That's, I actually retired from the army in the, as, as, in many ways, probably because of my mental health issues. And then of course, what do you do? I, I get a job and I bury him. And then about, I would say three years ago, pretty much everything came to a head. Um, my wife, again, we, we, we were breaking up. She ended up, we ended up getting divorced, unfortunately. Um, she had been putting up with me and my suicide ideations and kind of keeping that secret, covering up the secret. I was covering up my survivor's guilt by being an overachiever, which is a, a classic symptom of survivor's guilt. You see, you, you find that survivor's guilt guys tend to like overachieve to show that they belong. You know, well, I'm, I'm going to validate their self worth. Right. Exactly. It's such a, it, there's a great, a great study just came out, uh, not six months ago about just that, how, you know, overachievement and those kind of things are classic symptoms of survivor's well, guilt. And, and what makes it worse is that, the constant overachieving doesn't really, you know, satiate that desire to replace the loss. And so you end up chasing, you chase this thing that you can never catch. And ultimately you get back to the point where I'm still not good enough, right? It's not good enough. There's a great story. I don't know if you know Jason, you ever heard of Jason Kander. So he ran for uh, office in Missouri. He's from Kansas city. Uh, he was famous because he did one of his campaign commercials. He assembled and disassembled an M4 blindfolded. <laughs> and wow. he's, a, he's a Democrat politician, but Jason was running for mayor of Kansas city last summer a year ago, year and a half ago, and dropped out of the mayor's race because he had P he admitted he had PTSD. And and Jason wrote a wonderful blog or a, a post with his wife about PTSD, and that was it, man. Talked about how I was just doing all these things to make myself feel better, and it never worked. It was never good enough. And it was really – and I was already a year and a half into my treatment at that point. Uh, and then I did this thing called EMDR uh, because I it's a, it's a trauma-focused therapy, and, and it, it worked for me. It worked, but – because the theme was the same, right? People die, you go back to work. People die, you go back to work. I had a string of them, a whole lifetime of both military and civilian death associated with my life. Are you at a place now where, for lack of a better term, you're done unpacking everything. Now it's just a matter of organizing it and figuring out where, where to put it. Or are you still I'm, think I'm in a great place. Yeah, no, I, the, the therapy. So I did about a year of talk therapy and group therapy type stuff to deal with because I had to deal with what I was using to, over, to cover up the scars. First of all, mm -hmm. the thing about PTSD is you get really good at self-medicating, right? And my self-medications were – you know, not great. And so I had to unpack those. And then I, I actually talked about my life. I was actually at a conference in Atlanta 
with a, one of my favorite nonprofits, America's Worst Partnership. And one of my clients is a great guy named Major General Mark Graham, whose story is horrible. He lost one son to combat and one son to suicide. And so General Graham now runs an organization called Vets for Warriors. And he was on stage with a guy named Frank Larkin, who ended up, ironically, the father of Ryan Larkin, who was a hospital I served at recently, was named after, who also committed suicide, a Navy SEAL. And these two men were up there on stage, and I was listening to them talk, and I realized at that moment, that suicide could not be my choice anymore because right. it would, what it would do to my family, what it would do to my daughter, my oldest, my youngest daughter, what it would do to my son, and my even my wife at that point. We were still married, and uh, I remember going into the bathroom and having like a like this weird panic attack, like I hadn't had since 2004 when I first got back from Iraq, and I was freaked out. And I got back and I told my wife then, and who freaked out, and she went to the therapist, and they, she's like, "This guy's freaking out, man. He's angry." But I was pissed. I was pissed that I couldn't do that anymore. That that option wasn't the table. He's like, great. Now we can treat your PTSD because we're there, <laughs> you know. And and so then I did the EMDR uh, after a year and a half of preparation, and it was very effective for me. And so the, the the thing about EMDR when it works is the further you get away from it, the better you are. Once those things are out, once you've once you've processed those PTSD memories, you know the the ability. Like I used to be able to go. I could walk. I could have walked you through every single minute of the day Jen died. Or every single minute of the night, how Mike. Now you can see it's, it's actually a little bit hard to remember some of it, which somebody had warned me that would happen because those memories are no longer raw. They've been processed into regular long-term memory. It's just something that happened at this point. And so I'm a huge uh, fan of, of EMDR. It's tough. It's a trauma therapy. You got to talk about what happened. But for me, it's just been a year. Now it's been a year and a half. And I, I tell you, man, I'm in, I'm in a very good place. I, I, I have no regrets. And, uh, and now I'm in the mode of trying to help others, you know? Right. Uh, do you think... Just hypothetically speaking, you come across a, a veteran or, or someone who's a soldier. Are you at a point where you feel like you can spot the people uh, who are packing stuff? Hundred percent. Look, you know, let's look. Look at some of the things we've seen. Here's what worries me: is look at me. I'm you, know, you can't see me, but I'm 54 year old. I'm, I'm gray haired. I retired as lieutenant colonel. My peers from my year group are three stars now, right? And and look how many look how many guys. I mean, have you seen all the seniors? get fired. We've had three-star generals lose their jobs in the last couple of years, right? We've had, I know for a fact, one of them, I won't name him because I want to shame him, but he was a three-star commander and just was, was just kicked out one day. Well, I know for a fact he served with me in Iraq and I know he lost like a dozen men his very first tour uh, in northern in, in Mosul. And then he lost another dozen when he was a brigade commander. This guy lost a lot of soldiers. And then when he gets to a three-star, his wife leaves him and then all of a sudden he's relieved of command very surreptitiously. Okay. There's something there's something going on there, right? You, you see it all the time. I have peers who retired lieutenant colonel. I have one who his his family just broke up. He refused to get treatment. Um, I don't have any problems, like, dude. You're doing all these behaviors that I did, or you know, it's you have a problem. Nah, nah. Like, okay, you know. So I do see because I think the the army breeds, especially in senior officers, that you got to be fine, right? What did I tell you earlier? You, stuff happens, and the leader leads. You get back to leading, and I think there's a, there's a stigma of accepting that maybe. All these men who have died on your watch will take a chip out of you, you know? Well, it's – I mean I say it on the podcast and it's it's funny because I'll go through a PHA coming up, you know, a physical health assessment for those civilians listening. And part of that is the mental, you know, health yeah. of it whole thing. You sit down with a provider and they ask you all the same questions. You know, have you thought yeah. about hurting yourself? Have you thought about, this, you know, hurting anybody else? Are you depressed? And lo and behold, every single time I lie right to their face and tell them the answer that right. they want to hear because – I'm not about to jeopardize the rest of my career. I still want to serve. You know, I still want to run this race for as long as they'll allow me to run it. Um, and, and, I, and I know that we're better at it now as an organization. The military is about accepting PTSD. But still, 
when you Let's get to, when you get to the top of the pyramid, there's very right. little room for error. Right. And, I and, lost my clearance. Oh, you did? Lost, yeah, when in 2007, and at Harvard, I went to mental health. And I went to go get my top secret renewed. I was supposed to be part of the surge. I was going to work directly with General Petraeus during the surge as soon as I graduated from Harvard. And when I had to get my top secret renewed, I told them I had gotten treatment for my PTSD. And the little guy in sneakers of Fort Jackson, South Carolina, rejected my, my, uh, my clearance uh, completely. And I got assigned to the Pentagon, and the lady at the Pentagon gave it back. But they literally called – I didn't deploy for the surge because I lost my clearance because yeah. I admitted to getting – yeah. So now that was 2007. I'd like to think it's better, but it is better. More. But, you know, but I, still. I can say with my own you know, my own experience, it is true. They, may, <laughs> you know, I, I know it's a lot better than it was. But again, it, it, you're right. It, when you get to that top of that pyramid, imagine being a three star, and you and you're and you're dealing with. We had it. We had an admiral commit suicide. Just remember, an admiral committed suicide. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot going on. We're, we're losing senior officers after 18 years of war. So for me, I've been very open. It's been used against me because you, as we talked about a little bit, we won't need to talk politics, but I am a political guy. I'm very involved in, 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 in progressive politics, which is a rare thing in the veteran community. I get that. Um, my openness has been used against me just recently. Um, there's a person who was mad, big mad at me about something, something I said, who knows? <laughs> and, and they've been going around the internet saying, oh, his PTSD is just his brand. You know, he's just doing it for branding. It's like, no. For me, it's about every time I tell my story, and hopefully somebody on your podcast is listening, is going to go, shit, you know, if this old coot who was a CEO of a company for 10 years as well, if he can admit it and get help, then I can. And I was really gratified. I did a video for the VA recently, and I posted it to my personal social media channels, and I had three separate people message me or call me. One guy called me while I was in New York and said, I, dude, I'm, I, I see me in you. Like, yeah. And, and they all got, well, so three people got told me they were getting treatment because of my experience. And, and, and that's, and that's worth it. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the things we hope to achieve right. on this podcast, you know, is, is that ability to not only tell a story that not many people have heard, but also to allow somebody to say, Hey, there's somebody out there just like me. Exactly. Um, because there's so many people in the military who have plowed the same turf Right, and they've gone through the same things. They just don't know who they are because they can't talk about it with the ones that they did it with because right. they don't want to be. But if, if it's somebody else, they can reach out to a stranger and go, you know, I can relate. I can I can sympathize, and and there's there's a connection that we can draw together. So I, I think that that is you know highlights sort of the biggest point of being able to share your stories that somebody can connect with it on some Somebody's going to connect. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, mental health is like physical health. You know, I joke all the time with, you know, Petraeus is what, in his 60s now. He's still running FN marathons. I'm 54. I couldn't run. I had arthritis when I was 38. Right. right? Same life, same military career, right? Uh, in, when I was leg. I was a leg ranger, bro. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, it, and I was an aviator. But I could not keep up with Petraeus running because my body gave out on me when his de- – why? I don't know. Different bodies. Brains in the same way. Mm-hmm. Sure, my experience is unique. And that's why I denied that I had PTSD for so long. I like, couldn't possibly have it because this guy got blown up. I, I know this guy with missing two legs. He doesn't have PTSD. How could I possibly have it because dudes I commanded died right. or my wife was killed while getting our fucking – answer machine fixed for all goddamn reasons right <laughs> you know but it is and, and the brain is the brain and, and those traumatic events piled up for me in a way that ended up being very very destructive um and could have destroyed my life and may yet you never know i said i wasn't a great person for a long time well the thing about ptsd you know? is I mean, much like alcoholism or any other disease you never really heal yeah. you just learn to manage it and live with it yeah. so yeah from that standpoint although i gotta tell you man I, I i do venture out on a limb every now and then and say i'm healed you know, I, 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 the, for me, the treatment worked extremely well. I'm not saying it's perfect, I, but 
I gotta tell you, man, for me, the suicidal stuff is just gone. I mean, it's just gone. It never comes back. I'm in the middle of a really tough time right now. It'll, it'll come out soon. <laughs> right, right. You know, but the, the pandemic wasn't good to me and my, and my company, you know, and it, 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 it's touch and go. It, it, it may not survive, unfortunately. And, uh, but here I am still kind of laughing and, and able to find joy in life and, uh, and enjoy it. Cause well, that PTSD, man, I'll tell you, it's an anchor on everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, 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 and again, it's sometimes it's heavier than others to carry around. Yeah, but right. let's let's get to your company, ScoutComs. Sure. You founded it. Uh, how, when, and why? What was the premise? ScoutComs and the work I do today, even outside of ScoutComs, was a simple thing. I got out of the army, I had a job for about a year, it wasn't a great fit, and I was looking for a new job in 2010. And as I interviewed all these big public relations firms and, and other lobbying firms in D.C., there wasn't any veterans. I was the only veteran in the room consistently. And, and that's the nature of the agency world. There's a lot of reasons for it, good and bad. So I, I actually was in an interview with a guy, and, and they're kind of, he was an Air, Air, Israeli Air Force veteran. And uh, he's like, dude, you know, we're kind of dorking around. You know, why'd you start your own company? I'm like, man, I was in the Army for 22 years. I was in a not great company for a year. I know what right looks like to start a company. He says, Fred, let me tell you something. None of us know what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> you know, you're a smart guy. You'll figure it out. You make mistakes. I'm like, okay. So I drove home down I-95 and got the idea of the name. I was a scout and then I did comms, scout comms. It was available on every social media channel. Um, I'm a very dangerous driver, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I came home. I told the wife at the time. I said, hey, I think I'm going to start my own company because the phone's not ringing. Nobody's going to hire us. It's been 30 days. Um, she's like, great. Go for it. And uh, so I started ScoutComs in my basement with the idea of being uh, the expert for other agencies. I would be that guy who understands the nature of the military life. And that's what we did. I got – God, I got – I was very fortunate. I got calls right away. Four months into this adventure, I got a call from the agency in New York and their client was going to do veterans housing as their focus. And they want to have a veteran. And, th- and this guy's agency was all about like green housing. <laughs> and uh, so I said, great. Who's your client? He's like, the Home Depot. I said, I heard of him. Yeah, a hardware store, right? <laughs> and uh, the Home Depot Foundation at that time was donating $30 million over three years to veterans' causes. And that uh, brought me in. I did a proposal overnight. was working on Monday. I've been with them ever since, nine and a half years. Um, now they've donated over $300 million to veterans' housing. And that became the story of ScoutComs in many ways. We, 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 we became that agency. People called when they want to make a difference in the veterans' community. They want to get it right. They want to say the right words. Um, they want to impact. They didn't want to just work with the guys writing cardboard checks. They actually wanted to make a difference, uh, impact giving. Um, and we became partners. And the Home Depot Partnership is a perfect example of how you know we, we connected them with Team Rubicon. Um, they've been a big funder of Team Rubicon for many years. We connected them to the Student Veterans of America. You know, it's just been a really great arc. And that's where the firm is. So the firm became, I'm proud to say, one of the top firms in the country. You know, serving the veteran communities and, and both for-profit companies and nonprofits as well. But uh, but it's been a journey. It's, it's been pre- a journey. Pretty amazing. Um, I, I do want to take the turn with you um, to politics because, as you said, you ran for mayor. Uh, you're very yes. involved. Um, but it, and, and again, in fairness to our audience, most of the people that we have on that have some sort of political affiliation are on the the right wing side of things. They're of on the conservative yeah. side of things. You of our business. You you happen to fall on the other side of it, which I find <laughs> very interesting. Um now in the cesspool that is Twitter that some of us have to live on for our jobs, um <laughs> the one thing I will say is this, you know, the most intelligent discourse I usually have on Twitter when it comes to political or world events or whatever is with fellow veterans because it doesn't matter if we disagree. We understand a common ground and how to treat each other. Mm-hmm. You know, those sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, those army values always sort of shine through that, hey, it doesn't matter, man. We're still brothers in arms. Even if we disagree politically on what the world's supposed to look like, you know, we understand 
uh, that we're all fighting for a common good. Um, how we get there is, you know, again, that's that old uh, military out-of-the-box thinking. You can get there one way, I can get there another, but the results we both want are the same. But do you find yourself in a position where um, other military folks have sort of ostracized you a little bit? Do you get pushback from other military <laughs> folks? I'm just curious. I mean, I don't no, mean it in a yeah, negative yeah. way. I just, you know. No, because- no, it's true. It's, it's funny. It's just I just had an incident with a, a person who was uh, very big mad at me. Um, very much, actually. I, I've been, in many ways, I've found myself on the outside of some of my old circles from West Point and other places because I've taken a stance. Obviously, I'm not I'm a shy. I am, I'm not a big fan of, of the current president, and I've, I've made that clear since before he was elected. Um, and I, I've always approached my mil- my political values and my military values as my military values. It's my, you know, the duty on our country thing from West Point. I was raised by a Marine from Massachusetts. My family, I'm very blessed. We only found out before my dad passed, thankfully, that we go back always to 1640. My dad's side of the family was one of the originals. Like, we had a Minuteman and Served during Lexington and Concord, and I ended up, wow. one of my one of my ancestors actually fought at, at, at Trenton. He was actually with across the Delaware with Washington. My that is insane. Right? So, so we we've got a long history in this country of the values that make this country good, and that's what I stick to. And unfortunately, I found that I'm, I'm unfortunately this I'm in my sense this current mission doesn't necessarily meet those values the way I would have. Um, and so, so I found myself more and more on the political uh, left. That and I was a conservative for my entire life. I was Republican lifelong. I, I ran as Republican. Um, oh, really? For, yeah, it was nonpartisan, but I was Republican. Um, Every in that town was um, up until, frankly, I voted Republican in the t- 2016 primary. Um, so it, it just it just something changed, and, and I found myself on a, in a different set of values. And the more I did the research, and, and a lot of that had to do with being a CEO. It's like one of my employees not being able to get health care. Um, you know, I see because I couldn't afford to buy health care for my company at that time. Those kind of weird things. You go, God, there's there's more to it. And then, and frankly, my darn kids. I have four kids who are really hardcore lefties. <laughs> you know, and, uh, they dragged me into it, you know. And but again, it it, it it has been. There has been disappointment. I'm not gonna lie to you, man. It's like there's some of the hard, some of the harshest critics and the, and the most the most really horrible things that have been said about me have been from our our fellow veterans. Uh, oh, that's oh nice. you're you're just a pogue. You're 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 a pogue. You're a pazer. I've been called a traitor. I've been called. Uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, some some of the most heinous things. And I won't mention. There's one famous person who likes to drag me a lot. He f- hate follows me and likes to sick his million followers after me every now and then. And I'll get phones. Dude, I got a phone call. I came home last Saturday. Uh, for a bike ride, feeling very zen, and uh, some guy called me, got my phone number off my website, which is no longer there, by the way, <laughs> and called me to cuss me out, uh, a veteran. He goes, wait, because I'd blocked him that day because he was always saying really nasty shit to me. I finally just blocked him. He goes, wow, way to treat a fellow veteran. I'm like, dude, I blocked you on Twitter. Are you really calling me? <laughs> you, you decided to go to the work to call me at home to cuss me out? It's like, dude, it's it's Twitter. It's not real world. What is wrong no, with it, you? And that's, that's, that's the other <laughs> part know, of it like, that, that people fail yeah. to realize. But, you know, yeah. again, I... I've learned I've learned when it comes to um, you know discussions with people on Twitter, especially military people. You know, the the thing that irritates me the most is you know people claim that I use my service as a shield, which I think is crap because because it's part of who I am. You know, it's no more than 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 me shaped your values, right? right? It's it's, it's shaped your values. It's no more than me being one hundred percent Italian as as far as part of who I am and the way I was raised and how I grew up and everything else. I mean. You know, so I think that's a silly premise. But I also it's it's troubling that people who learn these military values can't take a step back and have a conversation with somebody who, again, wore a similar or same uniform and, and be able to at least try to achieve some understanding together. Because 
at its core, that's leadership, right? And and right. what troubles me about where we are, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, whether it's the president or the Speaker of the House, I don't see any leadership. And that bothers right. me. Right. So when I run for yep. office, I'm running on one platform, leadership, period. And that's why, that's why I love seeing like guys like Ruben Gallegos. If you know Ruben, he's a former Marine. Um, you know, he's a Lance Corporal, for God's sake. And he's out of Arizona, and he's a terrific leader. He's aggressive. He, he's, he's fair. He's, he's a leader. He's taking charge. And I, I, I love this generation, this younger generation of, of, of guys, especially veterans. Or, uh, uh, Seth Moulton's an old – actually, Seth and I served in Iraq together. I've known Seth. Oh, Really? Yeah, Seth and I, Seth and I were on staff with Petraeus together. I've known Seth since we were he was a young Marine captain. So I've known and so there is there is hope and it, there is great frustration. I do believe we have to look at what our values are as a nation. You know, and, and this this current I I think this latest fight, I mean the Confederates base names is a perfect example. It's like that's not political. It's the way I put it is very simple. Like, let's just think about it first. Just let's put yourself in someone else's shoes for a second. We're saying to black soldiers that you need to serve at a base that was named to actually honor those who fought to keep you in chains. It's not about <laughs> renaming it or who it should be named after. The point is, should we in the first place name a post after men, one of them being the founder of the KK, one of the founders of the KKK, another one who executed black prisoners after Petersburg, uh, uh, pick, you know, Pickett and, you know, and Benning. It's like, this isn't political. I can even go simpler than that, Fred. I mean, Fort Hood is named after a, a general who lost every engagement well, he not, was in. Good generals. That's right. He's a you're loser. Not, that's, that's, they're not even good generals. That's, that's why I like a lot. It's like Pickett, you know, Pickett's charge was the, the high point of the Confederate, you know, cause. Mm-hmm. He was forced out. He fled to Canada after the war. You know, you've got Hood. Like, so, Bragg, Fort Bragg, the great Bragg. Bragg was drummed out of the Confederate Army. He was yeah. forced to retire yeah. in 1863. But you know, you know what the funny part, too, is the funny part, too, about that is it, it's there's a weird sense of who history belongs to. Right. Like, right. I don't know where people think that history belongs to them. The only history that belongs to you is your family history, because right. that is directly tied to your name. That history that were that people are fighting so hard to, quote, preserve, which is a silly idea, because with the Internet now. History never gets erased. Oh, we're erasing history. You right. can't erase never. history. You, we're not you, erasing you, history. You, you're never going to tell the history of America without the Civil War, without slavery, period. It doesn't matter whether there's a statue or a base or not. So I, 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 it's just funny what people think as belongs to them personally as history. That's the country's history. That is America's right. history. And you as an individual, even though you're an American citizen, don't get to decide what, the, what that history is and how it should be presented to the people. And how it should be honored. I mean, and that's yes. my point is, is when you have a Confederate monument outside a courthouse or here at Monument, I mean, there's actually history that shows that Monument Avenue in Richmond, as gorgeous as those statues are, they were literally built to sell houses in a segregated neighborhood. It literally was a well, sales tech. It's like having the pretty water fountain in front of your son. Listen, it's like, maybe we shouldn't honor those guys. I have, Let's put them in the museum. I have a friend, okay, who I've known for 20 years. We were college classmates together. And as a black man, he told me this. He said, look, if those statues and things were built right after the war had ended as a monument to them. Perhaps, yeah, it would be right. different. But they were built after 1900 yeah. in a Jim Crow era as a big middle finger exactly, to remind yeah. you that, hey, this is still where you live. And, and right. to that end, I thought it was such a lucid point. You know, like I would say to a sports analogy, like I would say to Falcons fans, 
if if because I live here in Atlanta, if the Patriots took out a billboard that said twenty eight to three on it and posted it in the middle of Atlanta, how would you feel? It's giving <laughs> you a big middle finger about the Super Bowl exactly. lead that you blew. So it's right. like you wouldn't be happy about that either. It, it's that right. simple of a premise. They weren't. They, yes, they were built to honor those quote generals, and I and I air quote honor, but. It was also, there was an underlying reason of when they were built and why they were built. And it's sort of a big, hey, bleep you. And that's exactly it. And, and, and by the way, the thing about guys that you and I look like you and I, I, I served, a, I went to brag. I, I served a betting. I mean, I never thought twice about who that was, but that's because we had the luxury of not having to. Yeah. We, we, we you know, you gotta remember when I'm, I'm 54, it's re- people my age literally have grandparents or great grandparents who were slaves. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a yeah. second. Someone our age, my age, probably has a great grandparent, could very well have been a slave. And so it's a very real history to people who don't look like us. And so I think that's – I hate the term – I do actually hate the term white privilege. But it is something that we don't have to think about. I've, right. never, been, I've never had to worry about dying when a cop pulled me over. I never had to worry about being profiled because I'm an old white guy. I'm, I'm, I'm chubby. I look so uh, non-threatening. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so – for me, I've been very blessed with especially West Point classmates like a guy named Ron Steptoe and, and, and a number of others who have taken me under their arms said, look, here's a perspective for you, Fred, as a man who's had great success. I went to West Point. I went to Harvard. You, you can't have more white privilege than my life if you really want to be honest about it. Now I'm a flaming liberal. I'm, I'm, I'm the classic one, right? Mm-hmm. But I was very fortunate to have people who said – let me put you in somebody else's shoes for a minute and see what's going on here. This is what this says to me. Or this is – I mean the most heartbreaking – there's no – I get emotional – is a, a friend of mine who's got a black son and, and she's white. And having to talk to him about how to dress and how to walk and how to talk to police because they know people have gotten shot. It's like I've never had to have that conversation with my son about how he should, he should not wear a hoodie. When it goes out, sure, right, yeah. and I think I think for me, if you ask people how how you, I actually had a good conservative friend. She was actually in my first wedding and is a congressional staffer for a conservative Republican now. And she's like, "Dude, what happened to you? <laughs> what know? happened to you? <laughs> what happened to you? How'd you because it's a flaming liberal?" I'm like, "Well, let me tell you, you know, because I got I don't know, I hate the term woke, but I, I did wake up to like there's a perspective out there that isn't mine. I grew up in a subdivision on a golf course." Okay, and my dad was a GI Bill guy from World War II. I had certain, uh, I had a life of privilege that led me to this, and then my eyes have been wrenched open to the people who don't have that. And and I think I, if if I was really, I, I was asked to speak at an HBCU, uh, historically black college, at a diversity conference, and I remember this professor that called me. I remember I was talking to him, and I said, it, it, he's like, "Why don't you be the keynote?" I'm like, and I was fine. I was like, "Stevie," and he, he's like, "Fred." I know you're going to say you're white. <laughs> you know? I said, okay, you've seen my LinkedIn. Yeah. I'm a white guy <laughs> because Frederick is also often a black man. You know, Frederick Douglass, you know, he goes, no, I, I want you here because veterans issues are diversity issues, but I want someone else's voice. And I was scared to give this speech. And I called up my classmate, Ron Stepp. I said, Ron, I can't do this. I just, I'm, this is, I'm not that guy. He's like full stop. You know, the old, the old adage, like there would have been no civil rights act if MLK hadn't had Lyndon Johnson. And, 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 and his point was, and he, and he still calls me every now and then when I get depressed about things, when I'm getting my ass kicked on Twitter, or I'm, I've get, I had an article written about me that's not exactly flattering. Ron would remind, he goes, look, the fact is that people of privilege, that nothing will change unless those with privilege help those who don't. And so I forced myself in very uncomfortable positions. I went to a BLM rally here, and it was very uncomfortable for me because I stick out like a sore thumb. But I'm listening, and I'm hearing stories, and it's, it's eye-opening when you say – I never thought of it that way, you know? And so 
for me, it's become a passion that, and, and now with the election getting near, it's become more so. And but it is what it is, right? We, I think, I think when we talk about our values as a nation, I can't believe we're still fighting the fucking civil war. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, can we get over this? Can we just let it go? Because when you see what happened with the vagrancy laws and you know the Jim Crow era laws, the segregation and and, and redlining of housing here in Richmond, where there's a highway that, where they put I ninety five right through Navy Hill, which been the the, the the largest concentration of black residents. That's where they put the highway. You know, so it's it's these are such historic things that this these people remember the people who were affected by it remember and people look like you and I didn't have to because we were living in the good neighborhood in the suburbs. So I'm ranting. I apologize. I no, no. I mean, on, listen, but, but it's, it's been an eye opening experience. It, it, you know, again, you know, part part of my draw to you in getting you here was to get the other side and the other perspective. You know, I mean, I think it's uh, it's important that our veterans and our military are the best case and the best example of diversity in this country. I mean, you know, yeah. we fight hard for that. We're not there yet, but we fight hard for that. And and statistically speaking, the military is one of the most integrated and diverse organizations in the world. So, and, and, you know, it's broken a lot of people out of poverty. It's broken a lot of people out sure. of, of places. You know, it's good. It's a, it's a land of opportunity. Uh, and, 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 and it's good. Let, let me broach one more topic with you. There's something that's always been personal to me. I don't like how our military um, has become pawns in a lot of different games, sure. political and otherwise. I mean, yes. that's something I am a huge, staunch defender of. And for those who know, I work in sports talk radio on the civilian side. And so nothing irritates me more than when the NFL and Major League Baseball and everybody else want to use us to sell tickets, to sell camouflage uniforms, to to generate revenue for them. In the meanwhile, yep. we get nothing. Um, we get nothing out of it. And, uh, you know, the the idea that, Oh, they're giving back to the community. Look, they put a soldier on the field. Big freaking deal. Um, oh, you know, they, 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 they put him up in a skybox and let him watch the game. Big freaking deal. You know what they're not doing? What they're not doing is getting veterans more jobs. You know what they're not doing? They're not helping with mental health. They're not helping with the issues that are plaguing veterans and service members across the country. But yet they're still getting six-figure checks from local sponsors for their salute to service week, which, you know, again, drives me incredibly I, I, I had a client you know who my client was for a while nick francona oh nick you know, is a, yes nick, you know nick right i know nick you know very nick well story. yeah why did nick get fired because nick said hey where's the money if these camouflage hats going yeah because exactly it's not going it's, it's not and, going and back to any... have one it's like one veteran working mlb <laughs> because like it's... this is all bullshit that's exactly what nick has has had a, a battle on for yep. years now it's like this is that exactly that 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 program that that faux patriotism that you know that you know, that, that the performative patriotism right and it's not, it's not <laughs> just you know? it's not just sports we are we are very much used in politics the way right. we shouldn't be um right. you know I, I, we're a convenient toy for a, a lot of people in politics and, and even at that even at the state level for national guards we're a yeah. very convenient toy for governors to be able to use and put out there as props on TV. And and I don't know how we go about fixing that. I don't know how we go about changing that because at the end of the day as an organization, it's they say we do and there is really no consternation between, you know, right. um, and, and I suppose in theory we could put out a, you know, the Department of Defense could put out a, hey, no soldiers are allowed to integrate to, to you know, be part of sports celebrations or on-field celebration that they could do that. But then, you know, the military looks like a bunch of jerks right? For, because all they want to do is do something nice for you. Right. And what's but, reasonable and, and what's recruiting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, but it, we are, but I think we've also had 
a history of, of norms and customs that, that politicians are kind of recognizing. And while we did bump up against every now and then, we've definitely seen that. And that was that whole uh, Lafayette Square incident and, and, and the general, the CJCS actually apologized for his, uh, his, 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 his yeah, place. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a very trying time and, th- and those norms have slipped. I mean, I was frustrated because Mr. Trump, when they did the July 4th parade, uh, his team had a video out within like half an hour after the parade was over a campaign commercial. They they took an official presidential event with a flyover and troops and turned it into a camp. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Not that other politicians haven't done it, but it's so much more blatant <laughs> than it ever has been. Yeah, well, I, was that's a skeptic. I was a skeptic of the last president when they created joining forces. I was like, oh God, I, you could probably, I got to look at my Twitter. God, I probably should delete it all, but I'm positive there's a delete way back there where I'm criticizing joining, joining forces when President Obama set it up. Oh, here it is. They're, they're a military program to make them look good. And then they know what? They actually did a really good thing. And, and that damn thing lasted five years. And it ended up being a very, very powerful program. I actually hired the lady that ran it <laughs> you know, in my company when, it, when the administration was over. They actually invited me in. I, I bring clients to the East Wing. I, we would sit in Mrs. Obama's office and you know what? They would walk out going, I'll hire veterans <laughs> you know, because, because the pressure of, the, of, that, of the office. I mean, he was, she wasn't even there. But just sitting in her office, like I would have clients go, yeah, whatever you want. We'll do it. Um, they hosted events on homelessness. The last thing they did in that White House – after the election was they hosted a conference, an all-day conference on veterans homelessness um, in the White House, inviting nonprofits and for-profits from across the country. So I think there's the right way to do it in the wrong way. No one's ever been perfect of it. And like you said, I, I can't sure. see, but I do, I do worry about the politicization of the military. And I've also seen the very troubling, truly very aggressively political operations by serving personnel. And that's been some troubles for me. I think I tweeted about the other day. I, I, there was a – there's some really – especially as a public affairs guy, I see some really disturbing – you know, picking media outlets, specific media outlets. And, oh, you know, it's like we were never allowed to do that in the old days. Um, it's going to be interesting. I think we're facing an interesting time. Um, you well, know, we also have to tiptoe as an organization. Right. You know, so, what's the old adage we say? You know, we defend democracy. We don't practice it, right? Like that's right. how the military is right. supposed to. Yeah. But, you know, then you have right now we're, we're in an era, and I'm not calling it snowflake or soft or whatever, but no. if a soldier wants to – practice their First Amendment's rights, regardless of what their job is, you know, they're allowed to be able to do that. Now, can they be a representative of the government? No, they can't. So you can't go show right. up at a, a, a protest in uniform, per se, unless you have a duty to be there like National Guardsmen do. But, you know, it, it's it, it's a slippery slope we put ourselves on right now because uh, we have to balance between the defense of democracy and the ability to be part of it. Um, right. And, and there, there's a very fine line that you get into. And unfortunately, um, that line is sort of getting smaller or starting to being whittled away. Yeah. And, and then, of course, let's not even get into us retired guys and our voices. I had I got lectured by a famous news anchor the other day. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, you know, I have a voice, too. I, I fought for this country. I'm allowed to have a voice and maybe a, a voice you don't want to hear. But, you know, times have changed. It's, it's a really unique time in our country. And, and I do think we face we face a moment like few I've ever seen in my long life um, of, of, of who we are, defining who we are as a nation, defining who the military is. as a, And I'm glad it went the way it did because it could have gotten really ugly in D.C. I'm glad to see that the military stepped off the brink of uh, just the idea of act-duty military. I'm still I – mean, I, I, I don't know if you saw. I was very, very vocal about the fact they used a medevac aircraft. Uh, the D.C. Guard used a Lakota with red crosses on it to dust out the crowd. Um, I'm, I'm sitting on Twitter seeing a video of an actual medevac, an air ambulance – being used to disperse crowds 
and it's like, okay, I thank God. I'm so proud of the army for investigating it, and I'm I'm hoping that someone will get fired because it's like you know, it's like loading a SWAT team into an ambulance and driving them into a crowd. <laughs> you know, it's just like the decisions that went from A to a helicopter pilot, one of my fellow aviators hovering over a crowd in an air ambulance trying to dust them out and possibly hurt them is horrifying. And and I hope. I hope the army all sits back. I hope the military as an entity and the National Guard and our politicians take a step back and go, whoa, we really went too far, okay? I mean, if we use a Red Cross as an offensive effort to yeah. disperse, you know, it's like – Well, literally, that's awesome. – like, that's we have Geneva line. Convention rules against right? doing that. Yeah. Like, we won't oh, do it in combat. We never do that, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you know, you, that's the – that's that's the constant refrain I see from people of both political spectrums. That ends you in, that ends you up in Leavenworth yeah. if you do that in combat. Yeah, right. Yeah, the rules of engagement I used in combat are are tighter than what we're seeing right now occurring in America on our streets, both by military and by police. So I I, I, I actually am an optimist, which is weird because I'm not by nature, but I am optimistic that this a lot of us kind of went whoa that that was crazy. You know, like the like old school. The movie to like, that the end, like wow. Things got out of hand. <laughs> Let me ask one more question here. Does yeah. the military do a better job at checking itself than they did in the past? I um I can't answer that question. I think so. I think we you gotta remember the great thing about our system is we have a system of review, you know, the AAR process. The AAR process is so ingrained, and that's not typical for the uh, even after ten years in business, you know, we, you and I are so you know, like like the five paragraph operators in our brain. We we think in five paragraphs right now, right? <laughs> and it's the same way with the, the after action review process. I, I think we are better if we, we do ask ourselves hard questions more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes those questions are really – the answers are really ugly and we don't want well, to answer them. And, and yeah, I, so. I have said you know, that when it comes to – as we're sitting here recording this, you know, we're dealing with all these struggles with the police force and everything else and police brutality. You know, uh, the, the, the correlation is this. The, the military generally has gone unchecked by outside sources for decades because we're the only ones who check ourselves. Politicians right. don't really check us. They just right. use us. The same right. way – you know, mayors and police chiefs don't really check the police force. They just monitor the numbers and the results because that's what they're focused on. Oh, we need lower crime. So, you know, we'll get lower yeah. crime. They don't really care about how. So police forces generally go unchecked. And the correlation yeah. I use to police brutality is the sexual assault in the military that went unchecked for decades. Right. And oh, eventually yeah. it, enough of it came out that the military said, OK, full stop. We need to fix this now. And it is a training issue. And when you have two-star generals sitting in the same room with privates to get the same exact training from the top down, that is a full-on retraining of the force. And the only way that we actively started to cur and slow uh, sexual assault in the military was that sort of, you know, rapid sort of, and, and, you know, wild and oversight. oversight and that oversight. needed that needed to happen. Now, we're getting better. We're not great yet. We're getting a lot better at the way we do it. But I would say that is the exact same way that we have to retrain police forces. It, it matters that police chiefs, captains, you know, lieutenants, the sergeants are all yeah. in the same room with the beat cops doing the same training all over again to understand yeah. how to change things. And then after that, that's when you kick it into like, you know, basic training and at the police academy because if you start there, you're always there's always going to be a huge lag behind. 
Yep. And, but again, we are a product of, of America, right? I, I, you have that kid 18 years before I get him, right? So, so the values we bring in, I mean, we're going to have bad acts. We're going to have people make mistakes. And, 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 we, and the system that I love about the military I think is best is the UCMJ. The, the fact that we do self-police, which is one of the things that's been criticism of, the, of, of, of civilian police, the UCMJ does work. I mean, it's not perfect and we've got some fixes, but there's a system where we go, okay, that guy's a bad egg. I, you know, he, we could train in that. I can't train hate out of his heart. You know, I can do right. a lot of things. But it's so, so I like it. And then I also have a big believer going back to that the sexual what you talk about the sexual assault thing it's easy, it's easy to forget also that elizabeth warren and and a couple other female senators were all, all up our ass about that <laughs> and so in many ways i'm a big believer in the checks and balances of our government which hasn't occurred you said about oversight congress kind of walked away from I mean, when's the last time we had a hearing about afghanistan when's the last you know the war on terror it's like no one's overseeing we're doing whatever we want and and they, they pass the budget every year but i would love to see us go back to the days where congress actually did their job of providing oversight the executive branch and the executive branch cooperated in it <laughs> you know what i mean and, and the systems worked i mean i think and that's just this goes back decade not just this isn't just this current administration you can go back decades for the very beginning of the war on terror frankly uh, under previous administrations where congress just said hey you guys got it we're not generals well that's great but you know some generals aren't that smart <laughs> you know, right maybe, yeah maybe we should have some oversight i mean i mean the con we, we built this beautiful constitution and it's lasted all these years uh, i'm one of my biggest talking points in, in my politics is god i just love to see us if you love the constitution so much then, then let's let's just use it the way it's supposed to let's let's do all the amendments let's do the thing where congress like oversees the executive branch the judicial branch oversees everybody else <laughs> let's do all that you know let's have all those parts work the way they're supposed to i get mad when i see the executive branch blowing off hearings i get mad when congress doesn't freaking show up for them <laughs> and when they, you know what i mean you know i get mad when judges just rubber stamp back sure yeah i i just want to i would I, my dream is in america where the system we created is followed the way it's supposed to but i'm a dreamer well listen fred i mean it's it's an amazing discussion uh i've certainly enjoyed it uh, you know everything everything that you've went through and uh you know all your education and background have have sort of put it all together into uh, a finely tuned machine at this point in your life. You know, I mean, we're always constantly oh, trying really to get better not. and always constantly trying to improve. And, and you can see that, you know, I mean, your journey, um, while it's unique to, to and specific to you, it's it's something that other people are going to relate to. And I certainly appreciate all your honesty, all your candor, and, and a very vivid and lively discussion on the current state man, of things uh, in that's America. That's very kind of you. That's, so. that's, it's incredibly kind of you, man. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Let me tell some stories. And uh, it's been a joy. So thanks, man. I, I, I look forward to talking some more sometime. Uh, Fred Wellman, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.